The stories that we're going to be looking at today are about people who have come to the end of the road with what human ingenuity and knowledge can do for them. It's only a matter of time, really, before we all run into the brick walls of human limitations and the brokenness of this world, disease that we can't cure, disasters that we can't prevent, evils that we can't protect ourselves and others from, deaths we can't stop from taking place, broken hearts that we can't mend. What can we do? Well, the same thing that these people do. We can go to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that may sound cliche on the surface, but He is the one person who is always there for us. He may not take away the pain and the disappointment in the moment for us. He may not remove the circumstances from our life, but He walks with us through these things and He has promised that everything will be given purpose in our life. Nothing in our life is wasted. He redeems everything that happens in our life for His glory and our ultimate good. And that is a powerful truth for us to take hold of and to live our life by. These stories are found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And similar to several of the other stories that are found in all three of these Gospels, Matthew's telling of the stories are abbreviated leaving out many of the details that are included by Mark and Luke. Now, because of this, today we're going to actually look at these stories as told by Mark rather than by Matthew. Now, we're not going to do this a lot during our study of the Gospel of Matthew, but we are going to do it today. Mark's telling of the stories provides so much more detail that we would be flipping back and forth constantly between Matthew and Mark. And I think it will be less confusing and much more interesting for us to just simply go to Mark's gospel and look at his telling of these stories. What about Luke's telling of the stories, you might ask? Luke's telling is very similar to Mark's. So if, you, if we look at Mark's, we're good to go with Luke's as well. So flip over to Mark chapter 5 verse 21, Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and this is really us taking a look at Matthew chapter 9, 18 through 26, but today we're going to look at it through Mark's telling in his gospel in chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. It says here, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Jesus is in Capernaum, and as is often the case, a large crowd of people are gathered around him. And verse 22, Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Jairus was a synagogue leader or ruler. The synagogue leader or ruler was the lead administrator of the synagogue. He oversaw the functioning of the synagogue, including supervising the worship services and maintaining order. He was a highly respected and prominent member of the community. The love that Jairus has for his daughter is painfully obvious in his behavior here. 
leaving all of his dignity and pride behind, he falls at the feet of Jesus and he pleads with him to heal his daughter, right out here in front of this big crowd. Considering his position, Jairus may have been one of the critics of Jesus, along with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and other religious leaders, but now reality comes rushing in on him. His own precious child is dying, and all of the criticism of Jesus that he may have had is dropped. A crisis in our life can change our attitude dramatically, can't it? I mean, things that we used to think were so important are no longer so. Principles that we stubbornly clung to are let go of. There are a lot of self-proclaimed atheists and agnostics who talk confidently about their life as being not believing in God until circumstances in their life are unmanageable. When tragedy strikes, when it looks like the things that we love and cherish are about to be torn from us, when life becomes unmanageable and frightening, people start praying, don't they? Whether they believe in God or not. All of our talk about not believing in God gets thrown out of the window at a time like that, and we start praying, no matter how clumsy and unfamiliar that experience might be for us. When we reach the end of human ingenuity and knowledge, we instinctively reach out for God. Well, Jairus believes if Jesus will put his hands on his daughter, she will be healed. Do you remember the story about the Roman centurion's servant who needed healing in Matthew chapter 8? The Roman centurion, he believed all Jesus had to do is to speak the words, to give the command, and his servant would be healed. Jesus, he said, didn't even need to come to his house and see the servant. Jesus responds to the faith of both of these men, to Jairus and the Roman centurion, although they have very different ideas about what was needed for the healing to happen. Jesus meets both of these men where they're at, as he does us as well. But I, I, I wonder, as I think about these two stories, about the limits that we put on Jesus for our own receiving from him. If you'll just say the word, Jesus, if you will lay your hands on me, Jesus, if you will do this thing, Jesus, in response to me doing this other thing, Jesus, then I can receive your healing and grace. These are not things that he said need to be done. They're things that we're saying need to be done. What impact do our self-imposed requirements have on what Jesus does in our life? An interesting question for us to consider. Well, Jesus, he agrees to go with Jairus to his house. And it says, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. I want us to notice this huge crowd of people pressing in around Jesus. This crowd is going to play a part in the story in a moment. Well, as Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, he's interrupted. So we have a story inside of a story here in verse 25. It says, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So we're introduced 
to a woman who has been suffering with bleeding for the past 12 years. She spent all she had seeing countless doctors and none of them have been able to do anything for her. Instead of her getting better, she's actually gotten worse. We put a lot of hope in doctors, more than we realize. And when they're not able to help us with the condition that we're suffering from, it can be very discouraging, can't it? I mean, even in our own day, with all of the amazing advances in modern medicine, there are many things that even the best doctors don't know how to cure. When we bump into those limits, it can be discouraging. Where else are we going to turn when the most knowledgeable people in the field of medicine are stumped? Where do we go when we have tried everything and none of the treatments and procedures have worked for us? It can be very helpless and hopeless. And that's where this woman is at. Losing blood like this would have drained her of strength. She probably felt exhausted and weak and in pain all of the time. Long-term, unrelenting pain is difficult to live with. We can muster up the strength to take on short-lived pain when we know it will be over in a short time. But pain that's always present with no hope of ending it works on our mental state, doesn't it? It, it? it interrupts and it disturbs everything in our life. It's this constant, unwelcome companion that grinds us down, setting the rest of our life on edge. To make matters even worse, her suffering is not confined to just physical pain and fatigue. Her condition makes her ceremonially, religiously, socially unclean. Because the Jewish religion was so deeply a part of everything in that culture, to be religiously unclean, it meant that you were largely barred from society. And this is talked about in Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19 through 30, for those of you who may be interested in that. But no one risked touching her, not even family members, afraid they would become religiously unclean themselves. Anything she sat on or slept on was considered unclean. She shouldn't even be in this crowd of people right now. She's exposing all of them to potential religious contamination. Because of the social stigma associated with her condition, the mental anguish that this woman suffered from must have been as difficult, if not more so, than the physical pain. She's another example of someone considered untouchable by society. But Jesus looks past the exterior to the heart and is concerned with the person, regardless of the labels that the rest of society puts on them. Some of you may feel like society's untouchables. And I want you to know that you are never untouchable to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you or others think is wrong with you. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what someone else has done to you. The Lord loves you, and He never looks at you as an untouchable. 27, it says, When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His cloak, because she thought, If I just touch His clothes, I'll be healed. 
Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So having exhausted every other option, she comes to Jesus, desperate, but believing that he's able to heal her. She thinks if she can just touch his clothes, she'll be healed. But because of her uncleanness, she approaches him from behind, sneaking up, hoping no one, including Jesus, will notice her. Here's another person who's determined in her own mind what is needed for her to receive healing from Jesus. She says, if I touch his clothes, I'll be healed. We do this kind of thing too, don't we? We create requirements, criteria that we need to satisfy to receive from the Lord. What criteria are you and I putting ourselves under to receive from Jesus? Are these criteria from him? No. He tells us to receive by faith, but we then tend to add some kind of criteria, work, requirement, duty, hopes, or hoops to jump through to receive from Him. And in His wonderful grace, He meets us where we're at. But don't you wonder what could be if we didn't impose these limits on our relationship with Jesus? Well, she reaches through the crowd of people and touches the edge of Jesus' garment, and she is immediately healed. She knows she's been healed. She, she can feel it in her body. After 12 long years, this woman is finally freed from her suffering. And she's the happiest woman in Galilee until Jesus stops. He turns around and he asks, Who touched my clothes? She's like, Oh. oh. Verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. So not only did this woman feel something happen when she touched his clothes, but Jesus, he felt something new. He felt power go out from him. Jesus insists on knowing who it was that touched him and received the healing. He asks, who touched me? And his disciples, they think this is one of the oddest questions that they have ever heard him ask. There are hundreds of people touching him in this moment, pressing against him on every side. The disciples, they may have been tempted to say, Jesus, pick one. They're all touching you. Jesus' motivation for knowing who touched him was not to chastise this woman, though, or to embarrass her, to shame her in some way. He wants to make personal contact with her and affirm God's love for her. He wants her to know that God is pleased to give her what she has received. He wants her to know that she has not stolen her healing from the Lord. He has given it to her willingly. He wants her to receive God's grace and blessing without guilt or fear or shame. Jesus wants her to live in the center of that blessing and to worship God openly and unreservedly for it. 
He wants to clarify for her how this healing happened. It was not her superstitious thinking that by touching his garment she would be healed. It was her faith in Jesus himself, the Messiah, that has healed her. Thirty-three. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So the woman, she comes forward trembling with fear, it says, and she confesses to Jesus what she has done. She's afraid she's in big trouble. But her fears are misplaced. Jesus, he calls her daughter. This is the only time recorded in the Gospels where Jesus addresses a woman in this way. It shows his tenderness toward her. It shows the love that Jesus has for her. It shows the understanding that he has for her pain and her anguish. It shows his desire to calm her fears and reassure her. By having this woman come forward, Jesus is able to publicly acknowledge her healing to this watching crowd. He restores her reputation in the community. She's no longer ostracized, having to walk the streets of her town in shame. She is clean. She's clean. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? So while Jesus is still speaking to the woman, some people come up and they give Jairus the news that his daughter has died. They say, there's no longer any point in having Jesus come to the house. Your daughter's gone. Can you imagine how devastating this must have been for Jairus? His heart is crushed. I mean, he he had swallowed his pride and he rushed to get Jesus to save his precious daughter's life. And and now all of his efforts have been for naught. The nightmare that he dreaded has come upon him. His daughter has died. Thirty-six, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So Jesus, he ignores what these people are saying, and he turns to Jairus, and he says to him, don't be afraid, just believe. Trust me. And this sets up an interesting comparison with the woman who's just been healed. She was afraid, thinking that she had received her healing without Jesus' permission. This man is afraid, thinking that his window of opportunity for his daughter to be healed has closed. In both cases, that fear is driven by a misunderstanding of God's nature. Jesus tells them both, don't be afraid, trust me. Jesus, he separates himself from this large crowd that has been following, and he only takes the meaningful few as witnesses for what's about to happen. 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. When he arrives, 
at Jairus' house, he, he encounters this, it says this great commotion of people weeping and wailing over this girl. The custom of the day was to hire professional mourners to wail and mourn for your dead loved ones. The professional mourners are already at work when Jesus arrives. Jairus is a man with a prominent position and probably of some wealth. So there are probably a large number of professional mourners working the scene. Every culture has its ways of dealing with death, don't they? In our culture, we're hushed and we're quiet to show respect to those who are grieving. And in this culture, they express their grief with loud and dramatic wailing and crying. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. Jesus asked them to stop all of the wailing because the girl is not dead, only asleep. What did Jesus mean by saying that she's asleep? I mean, she's dead. But Jesus refers to it as sleeping. Because he's going to wake her up, bring her back to life. It's only a temporary condition like sleep. Death is referred to as sleep in other places of the Bible too, isn't it? For a similar reason. Even physical death is not final death. Those in Christ are raised to a new life, a resurrected life. And they're with Christ forever. The people, they don't understand what Jesus means. They, they laugh at him thinking that he's a crackpot. The girl is obviously dead. There's nothing anyone can do about that. It's never a good idea to laugh at Jesus. The joke will always be on us in the end. Verse 41 he took her by the hand and said to her, little girl, I say to you, get up. The Aramaic is given here. It was the common everyday language that people in that area spoke and is probably the language that Jesus usually spoke. But Mark, he translates the Aramaic for his non-Jewish readers. Little girl, I say to you, get up. In verse 42, it says, Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So she's immediately brought back to life. And those who witness the event, it says, are completely astonished, just She tells this small group of people that are present in the house to do two things. He tells them to give the girl something to eat. And I, I like that because that's where I live too. I would want something to eat if it were me. See, the last activity that I ever give up when I'm sick is eating. 
And the first activity that I resume when I'm feeling better is eating. Maybe you're like that too. The other thing, Jesus tells them not to tell anyone what has happened. Now, obviously, this event is not going to go completely unnoticed. Those who had been there wailing over the thought-to-be-dead girl are going to recognize her walking around town. Hey, aren't you the one that we were... But Jesus wants to minimize the spread of what has happened as much as he possibly can. Why would that be? I mean, one reason was because of the danger, perhaps, that people might try to force Jesus to be a political messiah. They would want to rally around him and in their misguided enthusiasm begin a revolt against the Roman government. And that's not the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. He didn't come to lead a revolt against the Romans. Raising someone from the dead was not an everyday occurrence. I mean, if this was to get out, I mean, who knows what might happen? It's one thing to bring the sick to Jesus to be healed. Bringing the dead to Jesus to be raised back to life, it would be something entirely different. It would be pretty crazy. Lastly, and I think this is important for us to remember, sometimes we forget that death is not the end. And this life is not the best that we have to look forward to. Being brought back to life in this life is not necessarily the best that can happen to us, is it? We can have a new eternal life, which is much better than anything in this life. Well, in closing, you might be in a situation that looks completely hopeless and everyone around you is telling you to give up. Don't bother the teacher anymore. But Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. Just believe. Trust me. You might be in a situation in which you've sought relief from your suffering from every avenue you can think of, all without any success. And Jesus says to trust him. Maybe you feel you are so unworthy of God's kindness and blessing that the only chance that you have to receive anything is to try to sneak up and take it, hoping not to be noticed. But you're forgetting God's generous grace and love. He blesses and He extends kindness to the unworthy. That's what grace is. Blessing and kindness given to those who don't deserve it. That's you and me. He loves you. Maybe you're afraid that your window of opportunity for receiving from the Lord has closed. You're too sinful. You're too old. You've broken too many promises that you've made to God. Whatever the reason that you have in your head for why God will reject you, why He will overlook you, why He will pass you by, I want to remind you of the words that Jesus spoke to Jairus that day. Don't be afraid. 
just believe, trust him. The Lord may not take away the pain and the disappointment in the moment. He may not remove the circumstances from our life, but he walks with us through it and he's promised that everything will be given a purpose. Nothing in our life is wasted. He redeems everything that happens in our life for his glory and our ultimate good. Close with 2 Corinthians 4.16. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this promise that you have given us in your word. That these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Lord, help us to put our focus on the eternal rather than the temporary. Help us to trust you, to not be afraid, but to trust you in all things in our life, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.